Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. My name is Don DiMuccio, and as always, we have a fantastic guest lined up for today's episode. But first, I need to address the 500-pound elephant in the room. By now, you would have all heard about my embarrassing and inexcusable behavior at the Academy Awards show the other night. And I feel the best way to move past this and promote healing is to just lay it all out for everyone to hear. If I can have my producer, Ting Ting, roll clip 3A, please. Hey, Chris, what'd you think of the last episode of my podcast? Wow, dude. It was a joke. That seems unnecessarily harsh. Hey, you promised you'd introduce me to Will Smith, even though he bitch slapped you on live TV. I'm going to, okay? Awesome. That was the greatest night in the history of television. Okay. Okay. All I can say is that I'm a fierce defender of the podcast. With my family, not so much. Remember, we want to keep bringing you the greatest guests from the greatest genre of music, and it cannot be done without your support. It really is starting to sound like PBS in here. Please subscribe to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You know what blows my mind? That even today, in our so-called enlightened times, bands like The Runaways, The Dixie Chicks, L7, and Fanny are still considered, quote-unquote, all-female bands. Like, that's the category of music they play. Well, it's not. These are rock and roll bands. But the kind of staying power that's earned them the respect they deserve. And none such band has been as successful and has sustained quite as long as the Go-Go's. And a major part of that success is attributed to their drummer, the heavy-hitting, straight-talking, rock and roll badass herself, Gina Shock.
Since 1979, today's guest has been the Drum of the Go-Go's, a band whose attitude, style, and sound define the very essence of the 1980s MTV generation. And although technically not the first all-female rock band, unlike Fanny or the Runaways before them, the Go-Go's were the first to reach number one in America with their monster hit album, Beauty and the Beat, which yielded instant classics like Our Lips Are Sealed and We Got the Beat. Now hot off the heels of being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, she recently released a very cool coffee table book, Made in Hollywood, all access with the Go-Go's. Pot memoir, pot scrapbook, it contains 40 years of private photos from the road and essays by many pop icons, including the band themselves. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, Gina Shock. Hello, Miss Shock. Hey, 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 how you doing, Daddy? Not bad. Thanks for being on the show. Oh, it is my absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you for asking. You've been doing a lot of these, I know. You've been very busy. Since the book came out, I have been doing a lot of press about the book, and it has been such a, a joyful experience for me because uh, that book really is its my life. It is my whole adult life. Uh, and so I'm always ready to talk about it. And anyway, go ahead, Don. You, you take over. No, it's fantastic. I've been enjoying it, and the pictures are great, and, and the backstory, and I want to get into it quite a bit. But, you know, we, we were originally scheduled to do this back during the holidays, but I know you were feeling a little under the weather at the time. I trust you're feeling a little better now. Well, I uh, I had to have surgery uh, on my right hand, on my thumb. Oh. Uh, yeah, I guess uh, 50 years of playing caught up with me. And yeah, uh, yeah my ligament, I started rehearsal because I usually go in 10 days to two weeks before the band uh, just to get myself in order, get my stamina up and get my chops up. And and I sat down the first day, tried to start playing and... and uh, <laughs> As I was playing, my thumb was just sl kept sliding right off of the stick. And I was like, Jesus Christ. And I was gripping it like a caveman, you know? I was like, I can't play like this. I can't, my, you know, my thumb, it's not working. I can't control the stick. Ugh. So uh, I, I called up my manager right away. I said, you got to get me into a specialist immediately, you know, because we were going to start, the band was going to start rehearsing in, 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 in a couple weeks. And uh, so I went in the next day and she said, you know, Gina, your ligament is just shot. You need to have have it either replaced or repaired. So, oh my God, then the whole thing started. I wound up having surgery on it, and I had this fantastic doctor who works on all, like, the athletes, big athletes, and uh, I had it done in L.A., a guy named Stephen Shin, and he wound up repairing the ligament in my thumb and then putting a little brace in there. So he said, this is going to fix it perfectly. And um, so I had that done. And the unfortunate thing is, is that the Go-Go's are doing six shows and I'm unfortunately not going to be playing them. Clem Burke is taking my place because, yeah. uh, you know, I, 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 the band was a little nervous about me maybe injuring it more. And I was like, you know what, I don't think it's going to happen, but I, I didn't feel right, you know, forcing them into to letting me play and making everybody uncomfortable if something yeah. went wrong. You know what I mean? So, uh, and I saw that he did the gig at the whiskey. It was a serious yeah, XM yeah. show. You know, he did yeah. an honorable job, but it's just not the same without you. No way. Uh, well, you know, when you've been playing with the same band for over 40 years, you've got a certain style and it, it works seamlessly with, with the band you, you've been with. Uh, we all know each other's moves. You know what every little move, what it means and how to adjust or, or what, you know, you just know what to do. So Clem's got a, I mean, he's an incredible drummer, man. He's one of the best around, uh, but his style is definitely different. Mm. So it's, it's a big adjustment for everyone, but I'm so happy that he's uh, taken over for me. Is this the first time in like 45 years that you've ever missed a gig? 
Well, actually, God, this is now you're bringing it all up. Uh, <laughs> I I was one to say that I had never missed a gig, but as of uh, like four four or five years ago, I had to have surgery on my neck, and then I had surgery on my shoulder. Um, it's all catching up with me, brother. Uh, so I did have my drum tech fill in for me on a show, um, actually at the Hollywood Bowl. So that would kind of bum me out. Oh, but, yeah. but but then I was right back, you know. Anyway, uh, yeah, I've had that happen before, but it's hard to pull me away from doing a show unless it's something really major like sure. a surgery, you know. Sure, of course. And your health comes first. Well, you know, it's like what I care about is making that band sound great. And if I am not going to be at top shape to do my job, then I wouldn't risk it, you know. And speaking of the band sounding great, congratulations on your induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And to quote Stella McCartney when Paul was finally inducted, it's about fucking time. <laughs> well, thanks, Don. Uh, well, it was something that we had been waiting for for quite a while. And, and you know, in the last several years, we were like, uh, to hell with it. We don't give a shit if they ever even if we're if we're not recognized in that way, because you know what? We know what our value is. We got the fans that love us. You know, we've done all right. Yeah. And then out of the blue, we find out. Oh, you're 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 going to be considered now. Oh, your name's in the pot. Okay, and then it was sort of like, eh, well, whatever, because I'm still thinking like, oh, uh, you know, Christ, suppose we we don't really get inducted, you know. Uh, so anyway, as it turns out, it all worked out for for us, and and all of a sudden uh, we were like, wow, this is the greatest thing in the world. We love it. Oh, well, you know, at, at one point we we're like, fuck it, and now we're all of a sudden like. Oh my God, it is wonderful. And you know, actually it is a wonderful feeling. I had that award on my desk in my office and, and I and I look at that and I think, wow, this is like, it's the equivalent of an Academy Award. It's like a lifetime achievement award, you yeah. know? It's a, it's a big thing to be recognized by your peers in that way, sure. I've got to say. I uh, just wish the powers that be over there at the hall would get their act together because it's awfully political. And I mean, obviously- it, it, Yeah, what? but you know, Don, they changed regimes there. So there's different people in there now. And I think that might've been a part of us getting in this yep. past year. Well, there was a little bit with Jan Wenner in the past, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's so weird because we used to sit in the office with Jan and smoke pot, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but John Sykes got in and he's an old pal. And sure. uh, now we get to vote. And so uh, we're going to definitely be pushing for more women to, to be inducted. Absolutely. Because there's, there's lots of women that need to be in there as well. Like Susie Quattro. Susie Quattro is an obvious. I feel like the B-52s, yep. come on. You know, there's a lot. There's a lot of folks out there that we want to have recognized in this way. I want to start a campaign to nominate people who should get kicked out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah, you bet. There are some folks in there that I wonder, who's greasing somebody's palm to get them? I, whatever. Well, it's know. not even that. They're not Rock and Roll, half of them. Well, should it be just called the... I don't know what if it should be called rock and roll, whatever that means anymore. I don't know, man. It's a big net. It's so. a, yeah. You took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say it's it's big. It's yeah. a big, big thing to, to encompass all sorts of music. And it all needs to be recognized, you sure. know, and should be recognized. So, yeah. Let's go on the Wayback Machine now. What was your first concert you ever attended? Okay. The first section of my book is when I was 11 years old, my brother took me to my first concert and that was Led Zeppelin opening for The Who. Oh, wow. And yeah, wow is right. What a way to start. You know, I just blew my mind. At the age of 11, I swear to you, I knew what I wanted to do the rest of my life. 
from that moment on, every dime that I got of my allowance was spent buying, you know, music magazines, music t-shirts, uh, every album that came into my favorite record store, every British import, everything that came out was spent on money. Every band that came into Baltimore, I had tickets for. I mean, it was, it was all about music. That's all I lived for. Mm -hmm. That was it. And I knew, or I believed in my heart that one day I was going to be up on that stage. I didn't, you know, initially I didn't really care what my part would be in the band, if I would be a guitarist, bassist, singer, whatever. But as it turns out, I wound up playing drums because it was the easiest instrument for me to play. And I, I'm self-taught. And so I, you know, I just picked up the sticks after trying, took some lessons on guitar, played bass a little bit. And it was easier for me to just listen to a record and, and, and pick it up by listening, you know, play by ear. I really didn't have patience for lessons. And so I thought, well, I'll try drums. And when I put headphones on and tried to play with whatever my favorite record was that week or that month, it was, oh, I don't even have to think this. My body just does this. Sure. It's, it's, there's no thought, man. My body moves in the way it's supposed to, to be able to play this instrument, to be able to play with my favorite songs. Sure. If you don't have that natural rhythm in you and you can't feel where the beat is, it's going to be very, very hard to start on the drums. You know, I'm not against taking lessons. I say, you know, do that as well. But yeah. there's got to be something in you. Playing drums or really any instrument for that matter, it's got to be a soulful experience. It's got to come from your soul, from right. your heart. Got to be something visceral. Got to be, you know, something that moves you. Uh, it's got to be a feeling. If you don't have the, the passion, way, it's not yeah. going to happen. Yeah, so, you know, and, and it's got to be, it's a it's a God-given gift, I believe. I just followed my heart and had fun doing it, and look where I am. Talking to me. <laughs> what happened? Wow. I'm What'd a crazy, <laughs> crazy lady, but I'm still here. You know, speaking of drums, there's a photo in the book of that beautiful 1957 Ludwig snare. Oh, you bet, baby. Yeah, WFL. WFL. Yeah, I bought that in a, uh, uh, I was on tour you know, before we had a record deal or whatever, I bought it in a thrift store and I brought that home. And the first thing I thought was, oh, I better get this all cleaned up and, you know, have it painted really nice. And like I took it to a drum store and they were, or a drum shop and they were like, do not touch this drum. All you need to do is get the rims trued, you mm -hmm. know, get them yep. all straightened out. Yep. Don't, don't touch this shell in any other way. And it stayed the same for all these years. And the, the other cool thing, that drum that snare and myself are the same age. <laughs> now, and that snare, you know what, Donnie? I have used that on every single Go-Go's recording, including Club Zero, our last the last thing we recorded. Really? I, now, I used that snare. Exclusively or just on certain tracks that you think? No, that on, on, on everything that wow. I can think of. I've always used that. It's crazy. Like, even when I went in, when we went in, what, was a year and a half to, to record Club Zero, uh, you know, I brought several snares, as I always do. Well, guess what one wound up winning? The 57. And that's sort of been the case through all that I can remember recordings. I, I always bring in a bunch of different snares for different sounds. And that 57, you can just make it sound all different ways. And it just, it's got a great sound. Man. I couldn't tell from the photo. Was it a 6 by 14 or 6 and a half? It it's looks a 6. six I think yeah. it's a 6. Yeah, it looks pretty big. sure. Yeah, so you're getting that nice sound. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. It's just got a great sound, man. It's. Uh, do you ever use it live? Uh-uh, no way will no, I take that. Nah. I <laughs> no, that stays in my house. That doesn't go anywhere except for recording. It. I'd never take that on tour. It's too precious. I was looking at some photos I saw online, and you looks like, I think behind you usually is a big music collection. Looks like you got a lot of memorabilia behind you. Oh, my God. That's, you know, how that book came about. I, I, 
Don, I save everything. Um, I mean, I'm not a hoarder because I'm like, I have OCD. I'm a total, I'm, I, everything's in its place and I'm a cleaner. I'm a crazy person. But all these things are memories for me. And I like to look at this and remember what I was doing and, you know, get that feeling back. Uh, you know, I have all my vinyl. I brought all my vinyl with me when I drove cross country in 1979 from Baltimore to L.A. seeking fame and fortune. I brought everything I owned in my father's pickup truck. You know, I brought my drums. I brought a PA system because back then you had to have your own PA when you played in clubs, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, everything Go-Go's. I have every tour book from every Go-Go's tour. I have every laminate pass. I, I mean, I just saved everything. I have every concert that I've ever gone to. I have every ticket. I saved that. You mentioned records. What was the first rock and roll record you bought as a kid? Do you know what? I can tell you. I do know that I bought singles first, okay? okay yep. Uh, I don't know what it was. I, I really don't remember because I was probably nine or ten years old. And, you know, what I would do when I would listen to LPs, I would wait till my brother left, and then I'd go in his room and play his records and scratch them all up. And <laughs> <laughs> But I had singles, you know, uh, 45s. And I don't really remember what the first record was, to be honest with you. The no, charts were very eclectic back then. It wasn't oh as God. segmented as today. How about that? Wasn't it all different? You could turn on the radio and hear all sorts of different music, you know? And same thing even in the 80s. I was thinking of how, how you, you know, you could turn on, on one station and hear, you could hear reggae, you could hear hard rock, you could hear regular rock, you could hear pop, you yeah. hear everything on one channel. And nowadays it's it's very different. Well, very, I'm, very different. I'm 51, and my earliest rock and roll memories when I really started getting into it was around 78, 79. Mm -hmm. And those charts, I mean, you'd hear everything from ACDC's Dirty Deeds would be on there. To the Beach Boys. You'd hear the, the Beach, Beach Boys, Boys. To Neil Diamond, Love on to the Rocks, to Stones. It was all there. Yeah. And it was all pop music. Oh, you bet. And I kind of miss that. Well, you know, uh, we can only control only so much. And, that, and when I say we, I mean that... I mean the general public and folks like myself that are in bands, that start bands, that contribute music, put it out there and hope to get it out to everyone else to hear. Right. And, and then you, know, you got to let go, you know. And but it would be nice if you got some cooperation from the labels. Kids are not shit. being exposed to this stuff. Do you know what? Well, there's the internet, baby, and that changed the whole game. People are exposed to a lot of stuff, but they get stuck in these little holes where they just listen to certain things. Right, right. And they're not, they're not. I, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. They're not, they're, it's, it's just so different. It's a little disturbing for me, but, uh, you know, what the hell are you going to do? That's it. You know what? You yep. just made me walk into my uh, music room oh. and I'm pulling out some 45s and I'm going to, let's see what I pull out. Yeah. You're going to die. You are going to die. Here's, now here's some of the first, Jesus Christ, look at this. Here is a band called The Boys on Scepter Records. What the hell was Scepter Records? And it was a song called Timothy. Do you remember that song? Oh, the, oh yeah. You know who that is? The guy who did the Pina Colada song. Uh, what, was, what was his name? Rupert Holmes? I don't know. He actually, I think he either wrote that or he was in. It's the, it's oh, spelled, God it, damn it. Dude, you're so right. It says Rupert Holmes as yeah, the writer. It's spelled B-U-O-Y, right? The Boys. Of boys yeah. B-U-O-Y. Yes, the boys. Yeah, it's about cannibalism. Yes, it, or not. it is. Yep. Where on earth did you go? Timothy, Timothy, God, why don't I know? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty dramatic. See, I'm a child of the 70s, kind of. I remember those. I remember, what's weird is I remember those words. Okay, now listen, check out what I got here next. Something on Stang 
Stang, S-T-A-N-G, records. Mm-hmm. Never heard of them. By the Moments and Whatnots, Girls, Part 1. What the hell is that? No Girls, idea. Part 2. No idea. Okay. Well, here you go. On Columbia, Go, Go, Pogo, Percy Faith. Percy Faith. That was the, uh, like, it was like an orchestra kind of thing? Percy Faith. On the other side. Oh, the theme from a summer place. That's it. Yeah. Da, 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 right. da, da. That's yeah. it. It's like instrumental stuff. Yeah. Oh, hot smoking sassafras. Oh, I remember that. Love that. Oh. oh yeah. Yep. The guess who? Hang on to your life. What's the flip on that? Do you miss me, darling? What? Huh. Oh, that's off of that. Oh, share the land. Oh man, I. You know what? I. I I've been listening to the guess who. Fucking awesome. Oh, man. they are. They really what are. What a great. Oh, and here we go. London Records. Now this is old honky tonk woman. And yep. you can't you can't always get what you want on the other side. Wow, what a single, huh? Double A side. You remember JoJo Gunn? Yes. I love JoJo Gunn. Love them. Run Run Run. That was the single. I remember that. The Who, Summertime Blues on Decca. On Decca Records. Oh, and the flip side of that was Heaven and Hell. John Entwistle song, God right? Damn it. Yeah. Oh, Don, I love you. Uh, and then on Windfall, Mountain, I love Mountain, Mississippi Queen. Ah, oh, nice. Oh man, well I got a million of them. We could sit here for hours. How do you I like know, that? I you know. You made me go in there and look at my forty fives. I mean, some of them were as I got a couple years into music, but nevertheless, you know, I was buying forty fives. Well, they were cheaper too. Of course, yeah. I had to have enough money to buy LPs. No. And my big deal for me was going to the music store and buying all the UK imports. Now, that was a big deal. That was like such a thrill for me because, you know, I mean, I felt like special because nobody else knew what, you know, nobody else in, that I hung out with would have any idea what the hell I was buying. Or what right. they were I'm like, wait, I got to turn you on to this band. Wait to hear them, blah, 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 on and on. Yeah, I would do stuff like that. I'm going to go over a little bit of Go-Go's band history. Sure, sure. You replaced the original drummer, Alyssa Bello? Yes. I guess in 79. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I saw that great documentary that you guys put out. It's and, good, uh, isn't it? It's Turn really good. good. I, I love it, Don. I'm proud of it. And it wipes away that awful taste from the VH1 special, which I think was a disservice to you guys. But we hated it. We thought it was so so trashy and ridiculous and just, uh, you know, same old crap that they always did, but... I interviewed Dennis DeYoung, and he said the same thing when they did yeah. about sticks. It's just really, it's not what they expected, and it's it's awful dramatics, you know? Yeah, you know, it's that sensationalist bullshit. But in that documentary, they mentioned that you kind of brought a sense of work ethic and direction into the band, which, you know, they were more like a young punk band. Those weren't big priorities, rehearsing and getting it together. Do you think you gave them that strong foundation? Oh, oh absolutely, man. Absolutely. You know, when I first saw them play, when I came to Los Angeles in, in I got in L.A. Valentine's Day of 79. And um, the guy that I was with at the time, me and my best friend Babs from high school, we drove across country together. And I was living with this guy, Steve and Babs and I. And um, he was like, he knew why I was out there. And he was like taking me to see every band. And he said, there's this band, the Go-Go's Gina. I'm going to take you to see him. You're going to you're going to kick that drummer out. And you're going to get the band and make them famous. And I was like, you bet, Steve. <laughs> so he took me to see the Go-Go's and I loved them. I thought they were pretty raggedy, but you know what? Uh, I, there was something about them. I, I I just loved them. They were, You know what it was, Don? They were having so much fun on stage 
And it wasn't like they were taking everything real seriously. Whereas me, I was so goddamn serious about everything. I needed to lighten up, you know, I really did. And, um, you know, I'm a Virgo. Everything had to be perfect. And my playing had to be, you know, precision-like. And uh, anyway, I saw them. I loved them. And then I met them at Steve's brother's house, Doug, at a party. And I met Jane and Belinda and the, the bass player at the time, Margo. And they were like, we're looking for a drummer. Are you interested? And at the time I was in two bands, but they weren't doing it for me. I, I, they, that was, I was just, you know, taking up some, some space there with this, with these other guys. But, uh, so anyway, I invited him over to the house and we played a couple songs and then that was it. I, I, that was on a Sunday. I quit the other two bands and they fired their drummer on Monday. And then we started rehearsing and these guys were rehearsing like a couple times a month. They were, just picked up their instruments basically uh, with the exception of Charlotte, she had been playing it for a little bit, but she was playing bass. And I was like, you guys, we really need to rehearse a lot more. And they thought I was a really good musician because, you know, I had been playing for a while. Um, and they just followed my lead and we started rehearsing five days a week after you finish work, not just on the weekend, right. you know, everybody started getting way, way better. And you know, Charlotte and Jane started writing more. They started getting really serious about what they were doing because I was dead serious. I came to California on a mission. You know, there's a lot more to the story, but this is sort of the overview. And uh, I really did sort of kick their butt because uh, I knew there was something there. I believed in my heart that these guys could do something if they got pushed a little harder. And so I sort of brought that to the table. In short order, you guys were recording your first demo, which contained mm -hmm. an early version of We Got the Beat which I think is cool and has a vibe all its own, a little different than the one people yeah. know. We put that out when we were on tour with uh, Madness and the Specials in the UK. It came out on Stiff Records, and it was a UK import here in the States. Mm. And here we are in England thinking like, oh, we're going to be so big over here. Like the States, they don't get us over there. We're way ahead of everybody. Uh, we didn't do that well in the UK. They didn't like us very much. And, uh, you know, after spending several months there, we come back to the States and We Got the Beat is huge in all the clubs. It's being played like crazy. Uh, on all the alternative stations, radio stations, they're playing We Got the Beat like yeah. crazy. Um, our manager at the time, Ginger, starts setting up some shows and everything sold out like right away. And there were lines around the block. Then we're selling out two and three shows here and there. And it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Did you recall that at Gold Star? Uh, yeah. Yes, we did. We did it with, um, what the heck's his name? Paul. <gasps> his dad is a big producer or a big guy in the business. Paul. Oh, God damn it. Why can't I think of Paul's last name? When you guys did that, were you aware of the history of Phil Spector recording there and um, Beach Boys or did that? I don't recall if we were aware of that. I'm sure it was probably brought up because Charlotte loved the Beach Boys. She was really big into surf music, like, you know, and yeah. surf music was kind of new for me because uh, I wasn't listening to that in Baltimore. I'm listening to Zeppelin and, you know, Leonard Skinner and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know, The Who and just, just. Heavier kind of stuff. I'm looking on the stiff single to see if it says anything on there about who produced it. Uh, oh, Paul Wexler. Da-da, that's it. Oh, Jerry Paul, Wexler's son? You bet. That oh. was Jerry Wexler's son, Paul. Yeah, he produced it. Mm -hmm. Did I hear a story that when you guys played in New York, I guess it would have been the summer of 1980? Yeah. There were a couple of big people in the audience watching you guys. 
Oh, yeah, with the, yeah, that, oh, my God almighty. Yeah, one, I'll never forget, as long as I live, of course. Uh, there was a VIP room at the Ritz upstairs, and uh, after the show, we all went in, and, well, we heard, after the minute we walked off the stage, that John Lennon was there. John and Yoko were at the show. Wow. But left at the encore, so, and then a couple months later, he was murdered. Yeah. Oh, my dear God. Uh yeah, so he was there, he and Yoko, and um, Pete Townsend was there, Jeez. and and David Bowie and his assistant Coco, who was with him everywhere, they were there, uh, and all the boys from Madness, because we had just been on tour with them, and they right. were back in the States, so yeah, man, what a night to remember, I'll never forget it as long as I live, I was just, I didn't even know what to say to, to Bowie, because he was such a hero of mine, uh, it was difficult to speak with him, but he was really nice, you know? He was a super cool, friendly gentleman. Pete was a little messed up, so I didn't really get to talk to him. But uh, bad time for him. Yeah, yeah. he had on. A, I'll never forget. He he uh, he had on a like a big white overcoat, uh, raincoat, and and he and he had one arm draped on draped on a girl, and one arm and draped on the on the other side another girl. His arm. Yeah, he was just sort of being led around. Yeah, but he was having a good time. But David Bowie was a bit more coherent. I'd say. So next big step was it working with and meeting Miles Copeland over at IRS. Uh, yeah. Well, there was a fellow named John Guarneri who uh, worked at IRS, and he had seen the Go Go's, and he told Miles about us, and then he got, I think, he got Miles to come and see us, and uh, that's really how that all came together. I don't exactly remember when we met Miles. I'm lucky I can remember anything, John. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, Miles was then interested in signing us after he saw us play. And uh, he's such a quirky, interesting, kind of goofy guy. He loved the fact just that we were women. He, he, I think he said he didn't even care if we could play or whatever. But what he saw us, he thought, wow, they're having fun. They're cute. You know, this could maybe go somewhere. And we delivered. And he was smart to team you up, I assume, part oh, of it with Richard, Richard Goddard. Oh, yeah, I are mean, you kidding his name came up a couple of years ago when I interviewed Robert Gordon. He had worked with him oh, too. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And Blondie, and you know, we love Blondie. And 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 so the thing with with Richard is, uh, Richard came to see us because Richard showed up at one of my, at a book signing I had at Rizzoli in New York in the city. Mm. And um, oh God, he surprised me, and it was so cool to see him. Um, and he told me a story. He said, "You know, Gina, when I first saw you guys, he saw us play at NYU." Miles asked him to go check us out because Miles had contacted Richard about possibly working with us. And Richard saw us play and he said, when I saw you guys, he said, I looked at the five of you and I saw something in each one of you that you were putting into making this whole, the five halves or bits making this complete unit. He said that really spoke to me that I felt, you know, that if I just worked on these songs with you, you know, cause you were, in, you guys were great live. Uh, but you, each one of you brought something to the table that was important and that made the Go-Go's have the sound that we had and made the songs work the way they did. And uh, so he was hooked. And then it wasn't long after that, we were in New York City recording. And he goes back to, what, the Angels and My Boyfriend's Back and The Strange yeah. Loves and all that great, stuff. Great songwriter. You know, I was, I still, and this is, I got to kick myself in the ass. I started reading and I'm halfway through it and I put it down. Seymour um, <clears throat> Stein's book. Have you read that? No. Don? Oh, it's fucking great. It's called Siren Songs. And it's about Seymour and Richard getting together and starting um, Sire Records. They started it together. And it, wow, what an interesting story. I'm actually three quarters of the way. I'm looking at the book right now because uh, I have it next to my bed to make me read it, which I need to finish. What a great book. What a really great story. 
But yeah, Richard was the song guy and Seymour was the numbers guy. Seymour was the guy that was, and, and Seymour loved to go to shows, you know, he, and he and Richard would go, they'd go see every band when they went to England. They'd see, you know, I mean, they signed Talking Heads. They were cutting edge as far as a record company goes. Sure. You know, uh, with the Ramones, my gosh, they signed really cool bands. You opened up for the police on the Ghost in the Machine tour, right? Oh, sure. That was your uh, first big, huge... What was it like as a drummer, too, getting used to playing? I know you, you, you toured Madness earlier, but playing those big stadiums. And- oh, so here's the here's the thing. We went from playing clubs, really. And then in Madness, with Madness, we played uh, theaters, basically, or large clubs. Yeah. Uh, and we came back to the States, and we continued playing clubs and then our manager ginger said i spoke to miles and he wants to put you guys on tour opening for the police and we're like oh of course we want to do that so we went from from our 12-seater van to a tour bus to 20,000 seaters overnight really um and wow what an experience uh and the coolest part of that was i mean besides playing with the police was that it was very soon after that when we walked on stage, the place was almost full. Normally you go to see, you know, a, you go to see a band and they have an opening act and there's usually not too many folks there for the opening act. But that wasn't the case when we were opening for the police. That place was pretty packed when we walked on stage. What what a, a, a duo, what a, you know, yeah. these two bands playing together. And it was perfect because we were both really playing great pop music, basically. And the album was out by then, so people knew yeah. who you were. And the, oh, oh, yeah. But the album had been out like six months, Don. And, you know, we were still playing in small clubs. When we went on tour to police, everything changed. Yeah. Uh, we started selling records. And then we did Saturday Night Live. And a week later, the record went to number one. Which is what would happen quite a bit with bands who went on Saturday Night Live then. Yeah. How about, I mean, the impact that that show had. Yeah. On people that were, I mean, I remember I couldn't wait for Saturdays because I I, I was dying to see who the guest, uh, the musical guest was going to be on Saturday Night Live. You know, it was always going to be somebody really cool. So we got to be that really cool band, and uh, it that changed a lot of things for us. Uh, you guys just missed the Midnight Special. I think that went off the air in '81. Oh my God, did I love the Midnight Special? How great was that? I wish they I wish they put that back on the air, like reruns of that. Everybody played Midnight Special. Everyone. I bought the uh, 36 DVD set of it, and it's like, oh, it's really? A, it's fantastic. Oh God, Don, I'd like to get that. Well, I'm gonna Google that, man. Yeah, and I don't think it's available anymore, but I'd be happy to make oh, you a no. copy. I'll send it to you. Shit, Don, I love that show. That was another big thing I would wait for. I mean, Ugh. and again, talking like we did before about the eclectic kind of bands. You, yep. Captain and Tennille, and then Kiss. Yep. And then Harry Chapin. And then, you know, it was incredible. Incredible. 81, this must have been. I, mean, I was asked, what was your worst gig? What was your best gig? I got to guess that at least at the time opening for the Rolling Stones, that had to be a dream gig. That was a dream gig. You bet. Um, was that a one-off or did you do multiple days? It was just, it was a one-off. Uh, Illinois. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. It was uh, in uh, Rockford, Rockford. Yep. And it was at the Metro and it was a, it was the smallest venue of their tour. It was a 10,000 seater. And, you know, the minute that we heard that we were asked if we'd like to do it, that was a no brainer. We just, we postponed several shows to do that one show. Um, and, oh my God, that was a thrill of a lifetime. It was just another moment in time that I'll never forget. 
hanging out with Charlie and Bill Wyman backstage before the show, uh, getting up on that stage, talking to Charlie's tech and, you know, asking, can I, can I sit on his, his drums? Can I, he was like, yeah, it was really nice. So I got to sit on his drums and I tapped him. I was afraid to really hit him, uh, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. picking up his sticks and, oh my God, what a thrill that was. And then, and then to be able to stand by the side of the stage and watch them do their show. Oh my God. How yeah, was the what? audience? Because I, I've seen the Stones at least 10 times and they always put the best. It's it's an honor that you were asked because they always put the best bands. They're not afraid to, you know, yeah. like a lot of acts won't do that. They don't want to oh, be They can stage. afford to. They can afford to, you know? Yeah. And, oh, well, the audience was great with us, uh, you know, because we were happening at the time. And, and those guys were great. They had, they had, um, uh, posters put up in the backstage area. It was, it was a, th it was in the round. This venue was in the round mm. and it was, um, I remember just never, we didn't actually meet Mick. He was busy. He was, he was jogging or, or, or around the, uh, the downstairs of that venue. Yeah. Like an app before the show. So he was, that's what he was doing. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and I remember, uh, Ronnie and uh, Keith were, uh, were a lot of laughter coming out of the dressing room and music and drinking. Yep, yep. Um, but then Charlie and, and Bill came over and said hi, and we took photos with them and, uh, actually did get to hang out a bit with Ronnie and his wife, Joe, back then in New York. So I actually did hang out and meet him. He was a doll. Because uh, I was always a big Ronnie Wood fan. I, I bought all his solo records. I was a big, you know, the faces. faces. I, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. You were starting oh. to say about that poster that they had. I see. I you, you still have that, don't you? Yeah. Oh, I have it up. It's in my. It's in my office. Yeah. Yeah. That's, oh, yeah. I saw it. Yeah. Yeah. They were. They and then and then of course the cool part of it is that like a month later, maybe even less, they started playing "Going to a Go Go" and then they recorded it on their live album. Oh, so they hadn't been doing that at that point. No. Oh, oh no no no! Oh. They started doing "Going to a Go Go" after they played with us. Oh, that's so cool! And I was like. I was like, I know, I know it had to, we had to influence them in that way. I know it has to be, that has to be why. <laughs> so again, you guys were huge. You had the great album and you put on Vacation, which is a very cool record. There's no two ways about it. But I guess it was that, I don't want to say sophomore jinx. But sophomore, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. well, they, they always, you got to sell as, as many as the first one. Well, that didn't happen. It, we were, it was like it, crazy what was going on at that time. We didn't have a minute off. And whatever the record label told us to do, we just did. We didn't question it. We didn't know any better. You right. know, we didn't know the word stop, <laughs> you know, take a break, vacation. Yeah, we needed a vacation. Do you think um, they should have given you, obviously, more time to just Yeah, I think it would have been nice to, to take off, uh, you know, like six months, sit down and, and, and write and write and write and write. Um, but those songs were like written on the road or vacation had already been written. It just needed some sprucing up. Well, that was the big, the hit of the record and a great song that Kathy had already written, but I wish we'd have had more time, you know, and by the time we did the third record, which I love as well, uh, you know, it, we, we were just, we, there was no stopping. We, we, we really did need some time off, but, but uh, Hey, I'm proud of everything we've done. It's all good. Of course. It's all good stuff. Forgive me. Cause it sounds like I want to go for the salacious stuff. Yeah, it's it's okay. part of the history, you know? It's okay. When the third album started, royalties became a bit of an issue. Oh, you bet. You started that ball rolling and asking yeah, questions. Um, yeah, the, the, uh, the issue was, uh, you know, Don, I'm not about money. I, everything I do, I do because I love to do it. Of course. You know, I've never done anything for, just for money. No. And uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I was in our, our manager's office one day. We were, were, were with Irving Azoff's uh, at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I was in his office and there was a check sitting on his desk and it had Charlotte's name on it. And the amount on that check, my eyes almost blew out of my head because I was getting nowhere near that amount. It was for songwriting. And I just lost my mind. He said, see, this is what the kind of money you can be making if you write, if you're a writer. Well, the people that were writing in the band, that was set. That team was already set up and I wasn't a part of it. And I was just, I was just learning how to write. And, uh, you know, I don't fucking know. I, it, it, it was a very difficult time. And I just felt like, you know what? My blood, sweat and tears went into making this band what they are. And the five of us, you know, it should be split. Everything should be split five ways. I know managers these days that will not sign a band. They won't work with a band unless they split everything because they know if the band makes it, it's just a matter of time before they break up if things aren't split equally. Of course. And you know what? And and what's funny is when I saw Richard Goddard, going back to Richard, I talked about this at the Rizzoli book signing. Um, He said, Gina, I told Miles that he better address the songwriting because it's like he said, it was the five of you that made this band what it was. Richard said those were his words. I saw something in each one of you that made this band what it was. He said, I told Miles right then and there, everything should be split equally. Well, Miles never did that. Never. I mean, I don't think. I don't, our lawyer, our, our ginger didn't know any better because she was just a friend of the band who was managing us and she was navigating things the best she could and learning as she went, but she truly loved this band and that, you know, her heart was in it. And, but you know, our lawyers, our miles, they, they should have, they should have sat us all down and said, guys, you know what? You better split everything equally. You better split that song right. Because you know what? If it wasn't for say, for instance, Gina's drum beat and we got the beat. I don't know how that song would have done. It's just when a band, especially like ours, it's it's the input of all the people in our band that, that give us our sound, that make these songs into hits, and that's it. Of course. You, 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 you can sit and write songs, you know, forever, but you've got to have a platform to sell those songs. You've got to have a way to get it out there to the public. And so, yes, Jane wrote good songs, Charlotte wrote good songs, Kathy and all, but you had to have a way to sell them. And the go-go's for that vehicle. You know, Belinda and I got shortchanged, and it, it just wasn't right. How many times, I'm sure you guys were all sitting around working on a song, and you throw out an idea, you say, let's put a stop here. or All that is a contribution to what the song is. becomes. Of course it is. When when Charlotte, the perfect example I use, We Got the Beat, because that's so obvious. When Charlotte brought in the guitar part for We Got the Beat, I just started that beat. The way that I started playing came into my head. I started playing. If I hadn't have come up with that drum beat, I don't think that song would have been what it became. No, you're over there. You're writing on the floor, Tom, or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. If yeah, you're, whatever yeah. it is. But I'm. You've got that you know, ballsy. Beat. You're right, and that would not have happened if Phil Collins was playing on that track. You know, right. it's just no. it's you. And you know, Don, there is the chemistry that you have as a band that cannot be duplicated anywhere else in the same way it just you know we've all played with different people and all of us still say wow you know it's it's just not the same until we play together all that nonsense didn't get settled to what 97 yeah Yeah, it took a while late 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 you know it's hard to let go of money when you're making a lot of it of course but (laughs) and you guys broke up came back together a couple three times Honestly, we really only broke up once, truth be told, and that was in 85. And then we got back together in 1990 with the help of Jane Fonda. And really, we have been together ever since. It might have been sitting, you know, there's been times that all of us have said, I I quit, I don't want to do this. But, you know, give it a month or two and it changes. (laughs) 
It was you a fifteen-year period between talk show and uh, God bless the Go Go's, right? Yeah, that we didn't make a record, but we were still playing. I got we you. started playing in nineteen ninety. We broke up in eighty-five. We were back together in nineteen ninety, playing, and we've been playing ever since. Well, I am going to ask you, what was the best gig in your mind that you've ever played? Oh, for God's sakes, uh, there isn't just one best one. There are several. There are, I think, one of the most important gigs for me was playing at Meriwether Post Pavilion in Columbia, Maryland, which is where I saw Led Zeppelin open for The Who, my first concert ever, going back there like 11 or 12 years later and playing on that same stage. And having all my friends, my neighborhood, all being at that show. My parents being there, seeing their kid play that stage. And, yeah. Uh, then I would have to say Madison Square Garden was a big one. I imagine uh, Rock know, and Rio was pretty big too, right? right? Oh, well, yeah, that was big. But I, I, I think about like, because like, you know, when we played Madison Square Garden, my mom and dad were sitting on the side of the stage. Like, that's the kind of stuff that matters. I got gotcha. you. When, when, gotcha. when, 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 when we played, um, you know, when we played the Hollywood Bowl for the, for the first time, my mom and dad were there. These these are the things that really matter to me. Uh, and Rock and Rio was, uh, was definitely a big thing for us because, well, it was for everybody because we played in front of 250,000 people and it was the first year that it, that it came together. So that, that was a quite a big event for, for us as well. But I mean, the ones that really count to me in my heart, you know, are probably the three that I just, you know, Madison Square Garden, the Bowl and Meriwether Post Pavilion. They were big ones. They were real big for me. Did Ozzy throw Charlotte out of his dressing room? In, in Rio, Rock, he Rock and Rio? Yeah, he had her thrown out. Yeah, she was... Yeah, that the Rock and Rio was sort of the height of everyone's drug intake. It was bad. It yeah. was bad. Not so much me at that point because I had had heart surgery, so I couldn't be screwing around too much. Uh, everybody was sort of out of control at that point in time. Uh, and you know what? I, I mean, I say it then. We didn't need to break up. Jane had quit like, you know, six months before that or whatever. Jane didn't need to leave. Jane should have just made a solo record and still stay in the Go-Go's. I mean, we all could have done that. Right. You know, I mean... It, we just needed, I think, better guidance. And, and as much as I say that, you know what? It's not easy to guide a group of rock stars, you know, because we certainly were at that time. We were a big, big band, and it's hard to rope us in. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about House of Shock. Yeah. Um, I was listening to this time, and it takes me back to my high school years. Yeah. That band had yourself, and Ellen DeGeneres' brother was in that, right? Yeah, Vance. Yeah. I met Vance through some friends in L.A. I was looking to put together a band. You know, when the Go-Go's broke up, I was thought, uh, you know what? I, I am not cut out to be a studio drummer. That doesn't move me. You yeah, know, it's yeah. not, I want to be in a band. And I didn't want to do a solo thing, you know? So I looked, started, and I found a partner. And that was Vance. And we started writing songs. And then we put together a band, Pass the Shock. And I, I you know, uh, we did one show. Miles Copeland managed us. I went to Miles and said, come on, are you interested? Played a couple couple songs he loved it he wanted to manage us and uh we did one show we set up a gig at the roxy and got a record deal after one show which is i think pretty phenomenal sure um tom wally signed us at capitol records i was really proud of, to be able to do that i was the drummer in the go-go's but i got my own record deal and i was writing the songs and you got a hell of a voice too my friend no i i got it i don't have a hell of a voice i think so I, my voice is uh, nasally and probably scratchy, but what my voice is is honest to the words that are coming out of my mouth. You know what I mean? It's like uh, when I sing those songs, they're true. It's true. It's, a tr it's, it's what I feel and what I want to be saying through these little vocal cords. And so, you know, uh, I, you know, it, to me, 
uh, especially if you're in a band, it's not about like being the greatest singer. It's about, once again, it comes back to singing things with soul, with feeling. That's what people gravitate towards, I believe, you know? They gotta believe what's coming out of your mouth. I just think you should do some more singing with the band, but I know it's tough too. Being a singing drummer is not an easy thing to do. Yeah, it just didn't start out that way. Yeah. And I, I, you know, here's the other thing too, Don. Uh, everybody in the band sings. And it was like always kind of a fight to who's going to be singing this and who's doing that. And I was like, I don't fucking need that, man. I'll just, <laughs> I'll concentrate on drums and that's fine. Sure. You know, but when we did the records, I would always do backing vocals. All right. Yeah, I do backing vocals on the records, but, but not live. I want to double back real quick. What sure. was the worst gig you've ever done? Oh, shoot. Uh, I can remember the worst gig we ever, and where in the hell was it? Somewhere in the Midwest. I can't remember where it was, but it was an outdoor show. And it was torrential downpour. It was like a hurricane hitting. High winds and buckets of water. We were in our trailer and we're waiting. Are we going to, are we going to go on? And we're like, oh, Jesus Christ. After an hour, it's like, come on, let's just call this. And our tour manager walked in. He said, you know, guys, there's people still standing out in the rain. So we were like, fuck it. We're going to go do it. So we went out and we played, I think, probably half of the set in the pouring rain. And um, just thanked the audience for being such troopers and and being there. Now, 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 you know, we've never had a bad show as far as audience goes, but circumstances you know yeah well yeah yeah that was the, that was her i'll never forget it it, it was crazy because I, I i mean i would have bet that fucking house on it that there was no way we were going to play that night because it was it was just the weather was so nuts yeah but we we did go out there and do it so if they're willing to stay out there that's the way we felt yeah. we couldn't leave it i mean no we're like no way man we can't walk away from this after these guys been standing out there for an hour well mind you half the audience had left but there was still a lot of people out there we're like uh-uh we got to do the right thing here. So we did. This song is a new song that we're trying out. Remember, you heard it first here. It's called Vacation.
1981. That's the Go-Go's with an early pre-release performance of what would be their third hit single, Vacation. And I want to thank Gina Shock of the Go-Go's for coming on and hanging out with me on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. Get her book, Made in Hollywood, all access with the Go-Go's. Really, it's a super cool collection of photos and essays, and the links to purchase are in the show notes, so check it out. If you want to check us out, you can do so online at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Typed out as all one word, no abbreviations, spaces, or apostrophes, who coincidentally was my favorite Greek philosopher. <laughs> Thank you. New content is just around the corner, so come back soon. And thanks for listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. We'll be right back.